Chapter Six of the Life of Honorable William F. Cody. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Barry Eads. The Life of Honorable William F. Cody by William F. Cody. Chapter Six Hard Times. As it was getting very late in the fall, we were compelled to winter at Fort Bridger, and a long, tedious winter it was. There were a great many troops there, and about four hundred of Russell, Majors, and Waddell's employees. These men were all organized into militia companies, which were officered by the wagon masters. Some lived in tents, others in cabins. It was known that our supplies would run short during the winter, and so all the men at the post were put on three-quarters rations to begin with. Before long they were reduced to one-half rations, and finally to one-quarter rations. We were forced to kill our poor worn-out cattle for beef. They were actually so poor that we had to prop them up to shoot them down. At last we fell back on the mules, which were killed and served up in good style. Many a poor, unsuspecting government mule passed in his chips that winter in order to keep the soldiers and bullwhackers from starvation. It was really a serious state of affairs. The wood for the post was obtained from the mountains, but having no longer any cattle or mules to transport it, the men were obliged to haul it themselves. Long lariats were tied to the wagons, and twenty men manning each, they were pulled to and from the mountains. Notwithstanding all these hardships, the men seemed to be contented and to enjoy themselves. The winter finally passed away, and early in the spring, as soon as we could travel, the civil employees of the government and the Teamsters and Freighters started for the Missouri River, the Johnson expedition having been abandoned. On the way down we stopped at Fort Laramie, and there met a supply train bound westward. Of course we all had a square meal once more, consisting of hardtack, bacon, coffee, and beans. I can honestly say that I thought it was the best meal I had ever eaten. At least I relished it more than any other, and I think the rest of the party did the same. On leaving Fort Laramie, Simpson was made brigade wagon master, and was put in charge of two large trains, with about four hundred extra men who were bound for Fort Leavenworth. When we came to Ash Hollow, instead of taking the usual trail over to the South Platte, Simpson concluded to follow the North Platte down to its junction with the South Platte. The two trains were traveling about fifteen miles apart, when one morning, while Simpson was with the rear train, he told his assistant wagon master, George Woods, and myself, to saddle up our mules, as he wanted us to go with him and overtake the head train. We started off at about eleven o'clock, and had ridden about seven miles when, while we were on a big plateau, back of Cedar Bluffs, we suddenly discovered a band of Indians coming out of the head of a ravine half a mile distant, and charging down upon us at full speed. I thought that our end had come this time sure. Simpson, however, took in the situation in a moment, and knowing that it would be impossible to escape by running our played-out mules, he adopted a bolder and much better plan. He jumped from his own mule and told us to dismount also. He then shot the three animals, and as they fell to the ground, he cut their throats to stop their kicking. He then jerked them into the shape of a triangle, and ordered us inside of the barricade. All of this was but the work of a few moments. Yet it was not done any too soon, for the Indians had got within three hundred yards of us, and were still advancing, and uttering their demonical yells and war-whoops. There were forty of the Redskins and only three of us. We were each armed with a Mississippi Jaeger and two Colts revolvers. Get ready for them with your guns and when they come within fifty yards, aim low, blaze away, and bring down your man. Such was the quick command of Simpson. The words had hardly escaped from his mouth, when the three Jaegers almost simultaneously belched forth their contents. 
We then seized our revolvers and opened a lively fire on the enemy, at short range, which checked their advance. Then we looked over our little barricade to ascertain what effect our fire had produced, and were much gratified at seeing three dead Indians and one horse lying on the ground. Only two or three of the Indians, it seemed, had firearms. It must be remembered that in those days every Indian did not own a needle gun or a Winchester rifle, as they now do. Their principal weapons were their bows and arrows. Seeing that they could not take our little fortification or drive us from it, they circled around us several times, shooting their arrows at us. One of the arrows struck George Wood in the left shoulder, inflicting only a slight wound, however, and several lodged in the bodies of the dead mules. Otherwise they did us no harm. The Indians finally galloped off to a safe distance, where our bullets could not reach them, and seemed to be holding a council. This was a lucky move for us, for it gave us an opportunity to reload our guns and pistols, and prepare for the next charge of the enemy. During the brief cessation of hostilities, Simpson extracted the arrow from Wood's shoulder, and put an immense quid of tobacco on the wound. Wood was then ready for business again. The Indians did not give us a very long rest, for with another desperate charge, as if to ride over us, they came dashing towards the mule barricade. We gave them a hot reception from our Jaegers and revolvers. They could not stand or understand the rapidly repeating fire of the revolvers, and we again checked them. They circled around us once more, and gave us a few parting shots as they rode off, leaving behind them another dead Indian and a horse. For two hours afterwards they did not seem to be doing anything but holding a council. We made good use of this time by digging up the ground inside the barricade with our knives, and throwing the loose earth around and over the mules, and we soon had a very respectable fortification. We were not troubled any more that day, but during the night the cunning rascals tried to burn us out by setting fire to the prairie. The buffalo grass was so short that the fire did not trouble us much, but the smoke concealed the Indians from our view, and they thought that they could approach close to us without being seen. We were aware of this and kept a sharp lookout, being prepared all the time to receive them. They finally abandoned the idea of surprising us. Next morning, bright and early, they gave us one more grand charge, and again we stood them off. They then rode away half a mile or so, and formed a circle around us. Each man dismounted and sat down, as if to wait and starve us out. They had evidently seen the advance train pass on the morning of the previous day, and believed that we belonged to that outfit, and were trying to overtake it. They had no idea that another train was on its way after us. Our hopes of escape from this unpleasant and perilous situation now depended upon the arrival of the rear train, and, when we saw that the Indians were going to besiege us instead of renewing their attacks, we felt rather confident of receiving timely assistance. We had expected that the train would be along late in the afternoon of the previous day, and as the morning wore away we were somewhat anxious and uneasy at its non-arrival. At last, about ten o'clock, we began to hear in the distance the loud and sharp reports of the big bullwhips, which were handled with great dexterity by the teamsters, and cracked like rifle shots. These were as welcome sounds to us as were the notes of the bagpipes to the besieged garrison at Lucknow. When the reinforcements were coming up and the pipers were heard playing, the Campbells are coming. In a few moments we saw the lead or head wagon coming slowly over the ridge, which had concealed the train from our view, and soon the whole outfit made its appearance. The Indians observed the approaching train, and assembling in a group, they held a short consultation. They then charged upon us once more, for the last time, and as they turned and dashed away over the prairie, we sent our farewell shots rattling after them. The Teamsters, seeing the Indians and hearing the shots, came rushing forward to our assistance, but by the time they reached us the Redskins had almost disappeared from view. The Teamsters eagerly asked us a hundred questions concerning our fight, 
admired our fort, and praised our pluck. Simpson's remarkable presence of mind in planning the defense was the general topic of conversation among all the men. When the teams came up, we obtained some water and bandages with which to dress Woods's wound, which had become quite inflamed and painful, and we then put him into one of the wagons. Simpson and myself obtained a remount, bade good-bye to our dead mules which had served us so well, and after collecting the ornaments and other plunder from the dead Indians, we left their bodies and bones to bleach on the prairie. The train moved on again, and we had no other adventures, except several exciting buffalo hunts on the South Platte near Plum Creek. We arrived at Fort Leavenworth about the middle of July, 1858, when I immediately visited home. I found mother in very poor health, as she was suffering from asthma. My oldest sister Martha had, during my absence, been married to John Crane, and was living at Leavenworth. During the winter at Fort Bridger I had frequently talked with Wild Bill about my family, and as I had become greatly attached to him, I asked him to come and make a visit to our house, which he promised to do. So one day, shortly after our return from Fort Bridger, he accompanied me home from Leavenworth. My mother and sisters, who had heard so much about him from me, were delighted to see him, and he spent several weeks at our place. They did everything possible to repay him for his kindness to me. Ever afterwards, when he was at or near Leavenworth, Wild Bill came out to our house to see the family, whether I was at home or not, and he always received a most cordial reception. His mother and sisters lived in Illinois, and he used to call our house his home, as he did not have one of his own. I had been home only about a month, after returning from Fort Bridger, when I again started out with another train, going this time as assistant wagon-master, under Buck Bomer. We went safely through to Fort Laramie, which was our destination, and from there we were ordered to take a load of supplies to a new post called Fort Wallach, which was being established at Cheyenne Pass. We made this trip and got back to Fort Laramie about November 1st. I then quit the employ of Russell, Majors, and Waddle, and joined a party of trappers who were sent out by the post-trader, Mr. Ward, to trap on the streams of the Chugwater and Laramie for beaver, otter, and other fur animals, and also to poison wolves for their pelts. We were out about two months, but as the expedition did not prove very profitable, and was rather dangerous on account of the Indians, we abandoned the enterprise, and came into Fort Laramie in the latter part of December. Being anxious to return to the Missouri River, I joined with two others, named Scott and Charlie, who were also desirous of going east on a visit, bought three ponies and a pack mule, and we started out together. We made rapid progress on our journey, and nothing worthy of note happened until one afternoon, along the banks of the Little Blue River, we spied a band of Indians hunting on the opposite side of the stream three miles away. We did not escape their notice, and they gave us a lively chase for two hours, but they could find no good crossing, and as evening came on, we finally got away from them. We traveled until late in the night, where, upon discovering a low, deep ravine, which we thought would make a comfortable and safe camping place, we stopped for a rest. In searching for a good place to make our beds, I found a hole, and I called to my companions that I had found a fine place for a nest. One of the party was to stand guard while the others slept. Scott took the first watch, while Charlie and I made a bed in the hole. While clearing out the place, we felt something rough, but as it was dark we could not make out what it was. At any rate, we concluded that it was bones or sticks of wood. We thought perhaps it might be the bones of some animal which had fallen in there and died. These bones, for such they really proved to be, we pushed one side and then lay down. But Charlie, being an inveterate smoker, 
could not resist the temptation of indulging in a smoke before going to sleep. He sat up and struck a match to light his old pipe. Our subterranean bedchamber was thus illuminated for a moment or two. I sprang to my feet in an instant, for a ghastly and horrifying sight was revealed to us. Eight or ten human skeletons lay scattered upon the ground. The light of the match died out, but we had seen enough to convince us that we were in a large grave, into which, perhaps, some unfortunate emigrants, who had been killed by the Indians, had been thrown, or, perhaps seeking refuge there, they had been corralled and then killed on the spot. If such was the case, they had met the fate of thousands of others, whose friends have never heard of them since they left their eastern homes to seek their fortunes in the far west. However, we did not care to investigate this mystery any further, but we hustled out of that chamber of death and informed Scott of our discovery. Most of the plainsmen are very superstitious, and we were no exception to the general rule. We surely thought that this incident was an evil omen, and that we would be killed if we remained there any longer. "'Let us dig out of here quicker than we can say Jack Robinson,' said Scott, and we began to dig out at once. We saddled our animals and hurriedly pushed forward through the darkness, traveling several miles before we again went into camp. Next morning it was snowing fiercely, but we proceeded as best we could, and that night we succeeded in reaching Oak Grove Ranch, which had been built during the summer. We here obtained comfortable accommodations and plenty to eat and drink, especially the latter. Scott and Charlie were great lovers and consumers of Tanglefoot, and they soon got gloriously drunk, keeping it up for three days, during which time they gambled with the ranchmen who got away with all their money, but little they cared for that as they had their spree. They finally sobered up, and we resumed our journey, urging our jaded animals as much as they could stand, until we struck Marysville, on the Big Blue. From this place to Leavenworth, we secured first-rate accommodations along the road, as the country had been pretty well settled. It was in February, 1859, that I got home. As there was now a good school in the neighborhood, taught by Mr. Davini, my mother wished me to attend it, and I did so for two months and a half the longest period of schooling that I ever received at any one time in my life. As soon as the spring came, and the grass began growing, I became uneasy and discontented, and again longed for the free and open life of the plains. The Pikes Peak gold excitement was then at its height, and everybody was rushing to the new gold diggings. I caught the gold fever myself, and joined a party bound for the new town of Aurora, on Cherry Creek, afterwards called Denver, in honor of the then governor of Kansas. On arriving at Aurora, we pushed on to the gold streams in the mountains, passing up through Golden Gate and over Guy Hill, and thence on to Blackhawk. We prospected for two months, but as none of us knew anything about mining, we met with very poor success, and finally concluded that prospecting for gold was not our forte. We accordingly abandoned the enterprise and turned our faces eastward once more. When we struck the Platte River, the happy thought of constructing a small raft, which would float us clear to the Missouri, and thence down to Leavenworth, entered our heads, and we accordingly carried out the plan. Upon the completion of the raft, we stocked it with provisions, and set sail down the stream. It was a light craft, and a jolly crew, and all was smooth sailing for four or five days. When we got near old Julesburg, we met with a serious mishap. Our raft ran into an eddy, and quick as lightning went to pieces throwing us all into the stream, which was so deep that we had to swim ashore. We lost everything we had, which greatly discouraged us, and we thereupon abandoned the idea of rafting it any further. We then walked over to Julesburg, which was only a few miles distant. 
This ranch, which became a somewhat famous spot, had been established by old Jules, a Frenchman, who was afterwards killed by the notorious Alf Slade. The Great Pony Express, about which so much had been said and written, was at that time just being started. The line was being stocked with horses and put into good running condition. At Julesburg I met Mr. George Chrisman, the leading wagon-master of Russell, Majors, and Wallow, who had always been a good friend to me. He had bought out old Jules, and was then the owner of Julesburg Ranch, and the agent of the Pony Express line. He hired me at once as a Pony Express rider. But as I was so young, he thought I would not be able to stand the fierce riding which was required of the messengers. He knew, however, that I had been raised in the saddle, that I felt more at home there than any other place, and as he saw that I was confident that I could stand the racket, and could ride as far and endure it as well as some of the older riders, he gave me a short route of forty-five miles, with the stations fifteen miles apart, and three changes of horses. I was required to make fifteen miles an hour, including the changes of horses. I was fortunate in getting well-broken animals, and being so light, I easily made my forty-five miles on time on my first trip out, and ever afterwards. I wrote to mother and told her how well I liked the exciting life of a pony express rider. She replied, and begged of me to give it up, as it would surely kill me. She was right about this, as fifteen miles an hour on horseback would, in short time, shake any man all to pieces, and there were but very few, if any, riders who could stand it for any great length of time. Nevertheless, I stuck to it for two months, and then, upon receiving a letter informing me that my mother was very sick, I gave it up and went back to the old home in Salt Creek Valley. End of chapter 6